The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. day two of our summer seven-day session, uh, 11th of January 2019, and we're going to continue to read from and comment on uh, passages from Principles of Zen by Martine Batchelor. And um, we got up yesterday um, to where uh, Martine Batchelor was talking about the three aspects of training, uh, ethics, meditation, and wisdom, and uh, understanding these as being um, essential ingredients for a viable practice, and not just that we need to practice each of them, but they need to be practiced in unison, um, simultaneously, and she likened um, this to uh, like a three-legged stool. If you any one leg or two legs are missing, then the stool becomes pretty useless. And we started to talk about about meditation, a second of these three, uh, and had looked at um, these two sides to meditation practice, quietness and clarity. Quietness um, is closely associated with concentration, with a unified mind. And inquiry uh, connected to this other aspect of clarity or brightness of mind. And so we were talking about um, We'd finished talking about concentration, just starting to about starting in talking about um, um, cultivating inquiry. This is done by questioning, looking deeply, staying alert in awareness. It stops the mind from becoming dull. The aim of meditation is to cultivate a state of mind which is equally quiet and bright. Meditation is not only about relaxing the mind, but also about the mind being clear and sharp. And through that, the mind can be used to its fullest potential for understanding and wisdom. Slowly, one learns to see the world in a different way, more open and full of potential. Um, It can be can be an uphill battle in these first couple of days of Sashin. <clears throat> to to um, experience this um, clarity, a lot of a lot of these these initial days, uh, we can feel feel pretty foggy, but after doing a few. Sashins, we, we come to know that this is a passing um, state that we're in, this, this, this fogginess. And it's just something, something we, we um, need to uh, go through and come through. The third training, she says, is wisdom. Zen wisdom, in simple terms, is knowing to drink out of a cup, that it is a cup and not a bucket, and being fully present in the drinking, the taste of the tea, its color, its fragrance, with no grasping of the cup, the tea, or ourselves, or anything else apart from that. So when you first hear this, that this is what wisdom is, to drink out of a cup, to know that it is a cup, and so forth, it sounds very, very simple. And it is actually very simple. But she adds this kind of um, footnote. It's not just about 
about that, but implicit in it is no grasping of the cup. Because we can't actually be fully present with drinking our tea if there is grasping. We're already, we're already adding something there. So with no grasping of the cup, the tea, or ourselves, or anything else apart from that. And of course, grasping here implies also its opposite, um, aversion, pushing away. So wisdom is simply being able to um, live our lives uh, without grasping and without aversion. Otherwise it's something very simple, very ordinary, uh, nothing special. Just drinking our tea, eating our porridge, washing our face. It is not about how many books we've read or how much intellectual knowledge we have accumulated. It is about seeing the characteristics of life in which, Buddhist which in Buddhist terms are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness or non-self. And then she looks at each of these, these three characteristics of, the dis of existence. In Zen, impermanence and death are often impressed upon one. Uh, here's what uh, Master Dogen <coughs> says about it, about impermanence. Being in the world, to what might it be compared? Dwelling in a dewdrop, fallen from a waterfowl's beak, the image of the moon. Dwelling in a dewdrop, fallen from a waterfowl's beak, the image of the moon. Or if we go to... Um, Western culture, the, um, the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius, he said, In the life of a man, his time is but a moment, his being an incessant flux, his senses a dim rush light, his body a prey of worms, his soul an unquiet eddy, his fortune dark, and his fame doubtful. In short, all that is of the body is as coursing waters, all that is of the soul as dreams and vapours, life a warfare, a brief sojourning in an alien land, and after repute oblivion. Uh, some, some commentators uh, guess that Marcus Aurelius suffered from depression and certainly um, this is a this is a, a bleak uh, picture that he paints of this life of, of uh, we human beings but we can't really argue with it Going back to another Buddhist uh, source, this is Padma Sambhava, the um, pioneer of Buddhism in, in uh, Tibet. This life passes as quickly as autumn clouds. Family and friends are like passers by in the marketplace. 
the demon of death approaches like twilight's shadows. What the future holds is like a translucent fish in cloudy waters. Life's experiences are like last night's dreams. The pleasures of the senses like an imaginary party. Meaningless activities are like waves lapping on the surface of the water. So, so not only impermanence, but the sense of the, the ungraspable nature of reality. It's, it's evanescence. Like flowing water, swirling mist. We can never, never pin it down, never. Grasp it. But in contrast to Marcus Aurelius, in Zen, this impermanence is not seen as something that we need to get gloomy or pessimistic about. Because impermanence cuts both ways. Actually, by, by um, deeply experiencing and understanding impermanence, we can realize the preciousness of life and the potential for change. She says, it is very easy for us to take life and people for granted. We generally believe that we will live for a few more years yet. We think it is other people who die until it threatens to happen to us or until somebody, somebody close to us dies. And, and inevitably we think of of the things that we that we didn't say. We thought we had all the time in the world to say those things, to express the, our love, to, to um, maybe ask forgiveness for something. And then it's too late. She says, I realized impermanence when I saw the last breath of my father. This changed me irrevocably. I look at my family, myself, my friends in a very different light. I realized how human, how frail we are. As Master Kusan used to say, our life rests upon a single breath. Actually, this, this, goes, this, this insight goes all the way back to the Buddha. Our, our life hinges on our uh, inhaling after we've exhaled and exhaling after we've inhaled. Fail to do that and we perish. When you are driving your car very fast to an appointment, is it better to risk dying or to arrive late? When you have an argument with your partner over the washing up, would you feel differently if you recognized that he or she might die tomorrow? Recognizing impermanence makes us realize that things can change. We have a tendency to fix, to permanentize. We have a headache and we feel that it will last at least a week. We have a problem we tell ourselves and we tell ourselves it will last forever and we become very anxious. How are we going to stand this terrible thing day in, day out? It is very rare for anything to last very long, be it our feelings, our thoughts, or even the world around us. Everything changes constantly. If we pay attention, we, we realize that even our most stuck states of mind are not always there. Even the things that we feel most, that most de define us and our problems, if we really look, 
we, we find that there are times when those things are not active in us. If we really look at our pain, we see how it waxes and wanes. It's not something, um, uh, uh, you know, we call it um, solid. If we accept that things change, then we open the door to an array of possibilities for ourselves and others. How often do we say, you're always like this, I am always like that, or, or never, so we use this in a similar, I'm never going to succeed at this, or um, it'll always be as bad as this. Should always beware when, when there is always or never in something we tell ourselves, and really ask ourselves: Is that actually true? Is that a reflection of how things are? Because, of course, if we if we're suffering some kind of pain, and and then we tell ourselves, it's going to be going like on like this forever, ever we add another whole layer of pain on top of the pain that we may not be able to avoid. Things become unbearable when we, when we add this always. Because we can't deal with, with something in, the, in those terms because it's an abstraction. We, but we can deal with what's happening right now. And that's much more manageable. <clears throat> she says, as soon as a Zen student hears always, he or she questions the statement with wisdom. Is this true or even possible? And then she gives a verse by the um, Japanese uh, poet Ryokan and monk. Time passes. There is no way we can hold it back. Why then do thoughts linger on long after everything else is gone? That's a good question. the sixth patriarch, Wei Nung, said something about this. Um, he said, impermanence is itself Buddha nature. Impermanence is itself Buddha nature. It's at the core of who and what we are. And then he added, permanence is the discriminating mind. Permanence is the discriminating mind. It's with our discriminating mind that we fix things and imagine that they're going to be uh, like this always. Next section is entitled Letting Go. With the wisdom that comes from experiencing impermanence, we realize that lovers, friends, family, possessions, jobs, houses, etc. are only there for a short time and cannot give us lasting happiness. Even if we are seduced by the hope that they will, we work very hard to achieve various things. We get a new car or a new job or a new lover. How long is it before frustration appears? Soon we find that the car is not going as fast as we had hoped, or we are worried that someone is going to scratch it. As for the new job, we feel that the atmosphere in the office is not pleasant enough after all or the job is not as satisfying as we would have hoped. 
and if only your new partner would wash the dishes or be more romantic, then truly we, you could have it all and be happy. One of the ways that um, oh, this, this discontent um, manifests in uh, Sesheen is um, with, with the uh, discomfort that we feel, physical discomfort. Um, we, we are experiencing some pain or discomfort and um, we imagine that if we could only just move even just a tiny little bit um, then we'd get some relief. And what usually happens, actually, is that if, say, we do move, um, usually within a f five or ten minutes, we're in a state of discomfort again. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we have this uh, rule about um, uh, no moving. Monitors have been telling me that, that some people are moving quite a bit and some of this isn't minor, people scratching their nose or brushing away a mosquito. But um, also more gross movements like adjusting cushions or changing position. And on the first day we do cut people some slack. Um, everybody is, is struggling to, to settle in. But um, really would just request that everybody um, pause before just ref getting into kind of reflex thing of, of moving. And I've asked the monitors to, to remind people to sit still if they see people moving consistently. Uh, very occasionally this, this uh, we just have to move. Maybe we get some sharp shooting pain, we, we're getting into position and we're in the wrong position. Um, or if, if we really encourage people, if you feel faint, to put your head down, or if you feel sick, to leave the zendo, or if you feel like you're going to uh, be sick, in other words. Um, but usually the kind of pain that we are dealing with in, in a round is, is a normal sense of some intensifying ache that gets worse as the round progresses. And usually with that, it doesn't help if we move slightly will maybe get some relief for a few minutes. But if we don't move, if we, if we um, pause, then we get a chance to look at our, our mind and what our mind is doing and how it's reacting to, to the unpleasant, uh, uncomfortable situation. We can start to see, perhaps, how our urge to fidget is part of our discontent, the desire to, to avoid what is unpleasant. And that's, that's, the, main, that's the main purpose of this th rule. It's a training rule to, to um, uh, create these, these limits, these um, strictures so that we get, we get up against our mind and get a chance to, to look at it. So, so there's, this, there's this inner work that, not, that not, not, not moving can help facilitate facing ourselves. And then of course the other reason for the rule is, is a social one. Uh, your, your moving may be disturbing to the people sitting next to you. And they may be in as much pain as you are, actually, and really trying hard to stay with it and not move. And it tends to be c contagious. If one person starts moving, then other people will start moving. So um, just please make, make an effort to, uh, to not move and to, to let go of that urge to avoid what is going on. Take, take the opportunity to, to um, see what's going on and see if you can't let go of some of those ideas about the pain. And we do discover when we work with pain the degree to which there is 
just the raw pain that, that comes from the posture and so forth, and what we add to it, the stories we tell, the, the, um, the reflex that we have around pain, our, our tendency to, to try and distance ourselves from it and keep it at arm's length. And as, and as long as we're doing that, we, we won't be able to find our freedom in working with pain. It's a little, um, little story, uh, kind of parable about, about letting go. Some of you may have heard this before. Once upon a time, there was a man walking through a forest thinking about his tendency to get angry. I just don't want to be angry anymore, he said, but I don't know how. I just can't shake off this affliction. Deep in the forest, he saw a holy man with his arms wrapped around a tree. Oh, holy man, can you help me? I'm plagued by anger and I can't stand it anymore. Can you teach me? Hmm, I can help you, said the sage. But first, you'll have to wait until this tree lets go of me. But sir, said the man, the tree isn't holding on to you, you're holding on to it. The sage smiled, let go of the tree, and disappeared into the forest. Back to our text, um, which is talking about uh, letting go of our, our um, attachments to things which can't actually bring us lasting happiness. Martin Batchelor says, It does not mean we cannot appreciate and care for what we have, but nothing can give us total, forever, lasting happiness because we and they are impermanent and so unsatisfactory in terms of our hope for it, in other words, lasting happiness. Understanding this will help us to strive less, to appreciate more, and to be content with what is. Yun-men said, every day is a good day. Our task is to learn to just fully accept and even appreciate whatever arises, including what is unpleasant, including loss and pain, and pain both physical and, and mental, emotional. Can't, can't overemphasize the, the, the central role that, that letting go plays in our practice. Ajahn Chah, the, the great Thai master, he said, uh, remember, you don't meditate to get anything, but to get rid of things. We do it not with desire, but with letting go. If you want anything, you won't find it. Every day is a good day. Every moment, a good moment. Next section is headed up, being enlightened by all things. The final part of wisdom is understanding emptiness or non-self. Zen is not nihilistic, saying that everything is empty or that we do not exist. It is rather suggesting that we are not existing independently, separate from everything else, 
and that inside us there is not a solid, unchanging kernel of something that is me. So that we do have this, this self which exists provisionally, but as soon as we try to uh, prove its existence or, or hold it up and point at it, we can't do that. We, can, we find that we can't, again, we can't pin it down. If we look at ourselves, can we say that since we were born there is something within us that has never changed? Imagine being a two-year-old baby, then a 30-year-old adult, then 60 years old. How many changes in body, mind and speech have happened in these 60 years? Where is the constant, unchanging self? Um, it's said that we Every seven years, we've, we've replaced every single cell in our body. Um, or, or we can, it's a little bit like, um, um, my grandfather's axe. It's had three new heads and two new handles. So is it the same axe? as it was 50 years ago. We're an endless flow of conditions. The conditions are particular and definite because of our specific parents, genes, history, social circumstances. These conditions are unique to us. There is therefore a relative sense of self, but this is not constant nor can it be reduced to one state or thing. We have so many roles, mother, daughter, teacher, friend, customer, etc. So many different feelings and moods, happy, sad, elated, anxious, tired, and on and on. How could we be just one thing? Even physically, one day we're tired and unwell and we look awful. Another day, preparing to go out to a party, we may look beautiful and radiant. The idea of non-self does not negate ourselves, but actually helps us to discover how, how multifaceted we are, how many possibilities we contain, and how much there is to discover and uncover. So, seen from the right perspective, um, again, this, this teaching of no self and emptiness can be liberating and it can help us to, to find meaning in our lives if we can start to recognize the different roles we play like, like, an, like an actor taking on a role can we do this role, can we play it well, play it to the hilt and then another role can we do the same with that? Realizing emptiness is to see that nothing exists separately or independently from anything else, and therefore there is nothing to grasp. Again, looking at ourselves, who are we? Why do we feel so separate, so cut off? This is a strange delusion. We are totally interdependent with the whole world. For example, when we breathe, the world is constantly entering through our nostrils, our mouth and our pores into our body. We're not hermetically, hermetically sealed. Furthermore, when we are with other people in a room, we are breathing the same air. Their outbreath goes into our lungs and vice versa. How much more intimate can we be? Um, in in uh, some deep ecology work, there's a little meditation that um, you can do where you go and stand um, among some trees or or on on grass, and you just become aware of your breath and aware that um, the the oxygen that is being exhaled by the plants and trees is the oxygen you're inhaling. 
and the CO2 that you're exhaling is being inhaled by the grass and the trees. How extraordinary that is. And what a beautiful demonstration of no self. Other things we depend on are food, clothes and shelter. Without these, these things we could not survive. So we are dependent on all that supports our life. In turn, these things, food for example, depend on something else for them to be. Reading this book, hearing this Taisho, you might be sitting on a chair. What is this chair? What makes it a chair? Where is the chairness of the chair, the self of this chair? Is it in the back, in the legs, in the cushioned part? Without any of these parts, it is not a chair, but any part by itself is not the chair either. It becomes a chair when all the components are put together and we sit on it. When the chair is in the way, we kick it and think it is a terrible chair. When we're tired, the chair is luxurious and soft, and we think of it as a wonderful chair. Or perhaps when we finally sit on it after sitting excruciating on the, on the mat, we think it's a wonderful chair. But then how long does that last when um, maybe halfway through a round we start to get uncomfortable in the chair and then we start to think of it as a, a terrible chair again? Terrible one minute, wonderful the next. What is the true state of the chair? And, and we do the same thing with people. We, we, attach, uh, we attach labels to people, qualities. She writes, um, we, we attach qualities to this imaginary solid self and say, Claudia is good, John is bad. And generally, forever after is implied. We, we take three-dimensional complex beings and we reduce them to flat cardboard cutouts, cartoon characters with these labels. We, we, we see only our often only our definition of a person as good or bad or um, whatever and and we lose sight of the whole person we condemn people or or alternatively we elevate them with these kinds of labels that we put on <coughs> they might have certain tendencies but it is likely that they will be good or bad according to their their own circumstances and our own preferences. The teaching on emptiness is trying to tell us that things and people are not as solid or as separate as we think they are. It is also trying to make us look beyond our simple assumptions and one-sided ideas in order to see a much bigger picture and finally to grasp less and appreciate more. Dogen expressed this succinctly, and then she quotes this famous, famous passage, um, to study the way is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self, to forget the self is to enlighten, be enlightened by the 10,000 things. To forget the self. This is again. This is another way we can talk about Sashin as as letting go. Practice is letting go. Another way is to um, is to think about it in terms of of uh, forgetting ourselves, freeing ourselves from that that narrative that that's uh, self preoccupation. 
imagining that um, we're um, at the center of the universe. Of course we are actually, each of us is at the center of the universe. But because each of us is, that, that relativizes that center. Next section, three attitudes, great faith, great courage, and great questioning. Great faith, great courage, and great questioning are the three qualities one is encouraged to cultivate in Zen practice. All Zen masters have expounded on them, but especially Da Hui, Chinul, and Hakuin. You may find many references to these great qualities in their writings. And, and we have here a Chinese master, Da Hui, the, 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 the master who developed the koan system that we still use. Chinul, the great Korean master, founder of the Jogye order. And um, I did uh, find his dates. We mentioned him the other day. Um, uh, he lived from 1158 to 1210. And then Hakuin, of course, Japanese master, reviver of the, of the Rinzai school. Great faith is faith in our own potential as Buddha, not in something outside of ourselves. Many different reasons might bring us to Zen practice, a friend, a teacher's talk, a book, search for spirituality and so on. And I would add here another one that I think is very, very common, is a loss of some kind. As we begin to sit in the quietness and clarity of the meditation, we realize that it is like coming home. There is a certain ease and simplicity. We start to have more faith in ourselves and in our potential. When I was translating for Master Kusan in Korea, all kinds of people would come to visit him, and I would often be there to help and to translate. Every time, whether they were Koreans or Westerners, young or old, farmers or historians, he would ask them exactly the same questions and give them the same instructions. This perplexed and disappointed me a little. I was hoping for more variety and spontaneous eloquence, eloquence from a Zen master until I realized how beautiful and what a lesson this was. He truly believed that anyone could practice this method and become awakened. There was no need to embellish anything. He showed me great faith in action. He had great faith in the Buddha nature of every single person. The Buddha nature is not different in anybody, so why should his instruction be different? However, his great faith was not enough, because when we listened to his words, words we had to have the great faith ourselves for it to work. Great faith might come upon someone suddenly, but generally it, it grows with practice. And this is an important point to, to understand. In Buddhism, uh, we don't have to have blind faith in anything. The understanding is that our faith um, must be based on experience. And so it is something that can, can grow and develop as we practice. She says, great faith can, might come upon somebody suddenly, but generally it grows with practice. At the beginning it is more like a belief, and we may feel rather separate from it. But as we continue, we see some changes in ourselves. Maybe we stop grasping so much at details, we open to possibilities, and peace and clarity become more familiar. We see ourselves better, we start to have faith in ourselves and in the, in the Zen practice. And others may also notice changes. Maybe we don't lose our temper so readily, or we don't get, um, we don't 
uh, get grumpy so often. When suddenly we have some insight like Master Huang Bo, we realize that this is not special, just unnatural way of being. As he said, when at last in a single flash you attain full realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature which has been with you all the time. When, when Master Dogen got back to Japan after his pilgrimage um, in China and he was asked what he had learnt while in Great Tang China from all the great masters, he said, um, I realised that my eyes were horizontal and my nose was vertical. So we're just realizing what we has been with us all the time. But it's complicated because we don't see that. We don't see that Buddha nature clearly. It's, uh, it's obscured. Our vision is screened, so we have to practice. But this practice is sustained by the great faith. It is like the sun being covered by thick clouds. We do not see the sun, but we know it is there and it will appear again. In the same way, our intrinsic Buddha nature is covered by delusions and ignorance, but they too come and go. The great faith will sustain us both when our practice goes well and when it does not. So the great faith is the basis and ground for Zen practice. The fact that, that we've all come to Sesheen is, is evidence of our faith. Nobody subjects themselves to the, the struggles of Sesheen unless they, they have a considerable amount of faith. She goes on then to talk about great courage. Uh, sometimes this is, is um, um, translated as determination, great determination. We need great courage to continue on the path great faith has, woke, has taken us upon. For example, Korean master Hyobong used to sit on a frozen river so the fresh air would keep him awake as he meditated for days and nights. Master Kusan used to sit on the edge of a cliff to keep himself alert when he meditated. I met a Zen nun who had been in silence for 10 years to help her be less distracted in her meditation practice. All this requires great courage. But nobody told them to do this. They were inspired by great faith and determination. It, it takes courage to come to Sashin. It takes courage to sit still with all that, that arises in our body and our minds. What kind of courage do we require in this modern world with all its complexities and urgencies? We need the courage to live in the present and not in the past or in the future. We need the courage to break our habits and patterns of thought. We need the courage to let go of our preferences, impulses and desires. We have such a tendency to be lost in our negative thoughts or our hopeful dreams, or to give in to despondency or laziness. When we do this, we are creating strong habits. How can we change this painful behavior? We actually need great courage to stand firm when we are buffeted by recurring desires, depressive thoughts, negative resentments, or beautiful daydreams. We must come back again and again to this moment and to the practice of being quiet and clear in awareness.
Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org. Auckland Zen dot org dot NZ.